Alright, so we're continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians. So if you're not there already, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at verses 14 to 21, the rest of the chapter. Um, Dr. Kirk was um, with us last, well, they're here still, thankfully. Well, not, okay. Anyway. We will pray that the Lord will enable negative tests and enable them to head out. But we're so thankful that Alex was able to open the word um, last week and walk us through the first half of Ephesians chapter 3. Um, we're going to look at the latter half, this prayer of Paul. So it's on page 977 if you're using the Pew Bible. All right? So <clears throat> before we dive into the text, I want you to think about a question. Just think about your own experience and how you would answer this. When have you been most keenly aware of God's love for you? Can you think of some times in your life when you have been most keenly aware of God's love for you? Another question. Are you more regularly aware of God's love for you in Christ? Or do you tend to think more often of the ways in which you fail to love God? Are you more aware of your failure to love God or God's love, faithful love for you? So are you more regularly aware of your failures to love than God's ever-flowing, unstoppable, victorious love? And so, if that's the case, I think I can be prone to that. If that's the case, what do you make of that? Why is that the case? And what should we do about it? Well, I think that both of those questions are worth pondering, and I think our passage is also going to help us as we consider God's limitless love this morning. All right, so let's... Go ahead and dive in. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. I'll read it here. There's an outline that'll show on the screen. There's also one on that live stream page if you want to just pull that up and follow along that way. So, <clears throat> Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so first point, strength for internal renovation, verses 14 to 17. Paul writes, for this reason, for what reason? Well, if you were here last week, you remember that chapter 3 began with the same three words. You see, 3-1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's that dash. 
And Alex mentioned how this is kind of like a digression that Paul goes on between verses 2 and 13. And then he picks it up again in verse 14, repeating, for this reason, I pray. So that digression is all about describing his ministry for them. So 3.1 says, for this reason, which reaches back into chapter 2 and even back into chapter 1. So all of this grace that is ours in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that are, that are ours in Him, He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Chapter 2, we have new life in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were made alive together with Christ, saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. We can't boast about any of it. It's all grace. And then that grace unites us. So in the first century, Jews and Gentiles were just like oil and water. And in Christ, God is making a new humanity that is one in Him. No boundaries at all. So these things are true, but it's really easy to not live in light of them. So Paul moves to a prayer. Remember, he moved to a prayer after the first section of chapter 1. All this amazing grace from eternity past to eternity future. We need help. We need the Spirit's help to grasp what's true for us. And Paul does it again here. So for this reason, because of all this grace, because of this unity in Christ, Jew and Gentile, and, and you know, all the challenges that that's going to kick up, he prays for these people. Because that digression also makes sense because we hear of Paul's ministry for them. Paul knows God's purpose for his church. And what does he do? He gives his life. That's why he's in prison. He preaches and writes and prays so that God will fulfill that purpose in his church in Ephesus. And he explained his role and his part in that big story that God is writing, like Alex mentioned. So, because of chapters 1 and 2, all that grace, and God's purpose in Paul's ministry to bring these things to fruition in the life of the Ephesians, he then prays that these grand plans of God would be actualized in the lives of the Ephesians as God unfolds this grand story of redemption. Okay, one more contextual connection before we go past the first three words. Sorry. Look at 3.13. So he's in prison. Don't think that I'm in prison for the wrong reasons. I'm actually in prison for good gospel glory reasons. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This is for your glory. This is your glory. So if you zoom back and look at the end of last week's section and then this section, what Paul is doing is he's saying, don't be discouraged, don't lose heart, be strengthened. So just notice that connection as well. Okay, so for this reason, that kind of catches us up to speed contextually. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named Everything derives from God. He is the Father of all humanity and the creator of all that is, including the, the angelic powers. So I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So this is the first request. There's, we're going to find that there's three requests in this prayer. This is the first one, okay? That the Father would grant us to be strengthened so that Christ may make himself at home in us. So how? Well, with power, his power. See that? How's he going to do this? How's he going to strengthen us? He's going to strengthen us with his power. Do you remember the end of chapter 1? This resurrection power, this immeasurable power that's available for us who believe, that's at work in us who believe? We've been raised from the dead. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised us up spiritually with Christ. So how's he going to strengthen us? With power, resurrection power. How? Through his spirit. It's a beautiful Trinitarian prayer here. The Father, on behalf of the work of, or through the work of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. So Trinitarian prayer. Where does this work happen? In your inner man. In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell. Where? Again, in your hearts. And how does that happen? What's our role? Well, through faith. We believe. So there's a slide that kind of shows you the flow here. Do you see the parallels? Grant you to be strengthened through his spirit, through faith, in your inner being, in your hearts. Do you see how those are parallel? So that Christ may dwell in you. So God is at work in our inner being, in our hearts. He wants to change us from the inside out. Christ is dwelling in us. How does that happen? By the power of the Spirit, that's God's work enabling us to believe and trust Christ and welcome Him. So strengthen through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But wait, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's writing to the church, to Christians. Like, doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts? Like, what does this mean? If Paul's talking to Christians, isn't this already the case? Like, why is he praying for it? Well, I want to read an extended quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, which, by the way, some guys are going through that book on, is it Tuesday nights? Somebody give me a nod here. Yes, there we go, Jose. Okay, Tuesday nights, what time? Eight? Okay, so if you want to join in on that study, you can talk to Jose. Vito leads that study, um, but raise your hand. Can they talk to you afterwards? Okay, great. You can jump into it. So, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, near the end of that book in chapter 9, there's a chapter called Counting the Cost, and he writes at first from Jesus' perspective and says this, Whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And yet, this helper who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection, obviously not reached until heaven, but in process all along 
We'll also be delighted with the first feeble, stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. As a great Christian writer pointed out, every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. In the same way, he said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. So, a good father delights in those wobbly first steps, but no good father would want that son or daughter to just be wobbly for the rest of their lives, right? So easy to please, hard to satisfy. He goes on. The practical upshot of this, or upshot is this. On the one hand, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least in your present attempts or failures. Each time you, will, you fall, he will pick you up again. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal toward which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection, and no power in the whole universe can prevent him from taking you to that goal. That is what you are in for, Christian, brother or sister. And it is very important to realize that. If we do not, then we are very likely to start pulling back and resisting him after a certain point. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us and when he remade us by his grace. That is why we must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptations, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that's because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. And then he gives this illustration. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Well, indeed, he already does. The command to be perfect is not idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said.
So do you see how we need Christ to dwell in our hearts? Like not in a little closet. Like, okay, Jesus, this is your closet. Or you get the first floor. But just stay out of the basement. Every nook and cranny. So there's a, a parallel here to this language of in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. It should be up on the screen here. I think it kind of sheds light on this dynamic. So Paul writes there and says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, it's actually the same the same phrase, inner man, okay, as Ephesians 3, inner being, it, it's translated in Ephesians 3. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How? When? when how does this internal renewal happen? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So this is walking by faith. Remember Ephesians chapter 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So D.A. Carson writes this. He says, we all know senior saints who, as their physical strength is reduced, nevertheless become more and more steadfast and radiant. Their memories may be fading. Their arthritis may nearly be, be nearly unbearable. Their ventures beyond their small rooms or apartments may be severely curtailed. But somehow they live as if they already have one foot in heaven. As their outer being weakens, their inner being runs from strength to strength. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Ephesians 3 is how we become that kind of person. There's some of those kind of people here. There's some elderly saints that I call, I was even just thinking of it this past week or last week. Um, if you are just down in the dumps, you know what you need to do? Just, I'll tell you who to call. Give you a handful of names. Call one of these older saints. And man, I tell you, I come away more encouraged, I'm sure, than I give any encouragement to them. I want to be like them. Marion would be one of them. So, conversely, if we just ignore this grace in, in Ephesians 3, conversely, we know elderly folk who, so far as we can tell, are not suffering from any serious organic decay, yet as old age weighs down on them, they nevertheless become more and more bitter, caustic, demanding, spiteful, and introverted. It's almost as if the civilizing restraints imposed on them by cultural expectations are no longer adequate. In their youth, they had sufficient physical stamina to keep their inner being somewhat kept. Now, with reserves of energy diminishing, what they really are in their inner being is coming out. So may that never be. So do you see why God is interested in this work in our inner being? You see why I mentioned kind of the, the point as internal renovation. When Christ dwells in our hearts, he doesn't intend to leave us the same. He is Lord and King, and he intends to rule over every nook and cranny of our lives. 
Our part is to yield to him, to welcome him, to trust him with that work because he wants to dwell in our hearts through faith, us trusting him. So we can get a little weak in the proverbial knees when Jesus shows us how he intends to change us. So we need strength. So I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We need to be strengthened internally so that we will welcome his renovating work and not shrink away from it. Do you ever shrink away when he comes with his hammer and whatever else? Some demo work, ouch. Rebuilding can be painful. New obediences, out of your comfort zone. So this process can be painful, but it's not without divine resources. Look at verse 16 again. He grants us according to the riches of his glory. That is inexhaustible riches. And it's strengthened through his spirit, his omnipotent, mighty spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. And then at the end of verse 17, he wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. So he is planting us deep in his love. Deep, strong roots is what he wants to give us. He's building our lives on a rock-solid, firm foundation. So there's an agricultural and a construction metaphor here. Being rooted and then grounded is this rock-solid foundation, firm foundation. So he intends to give us deep roots and a strong foundation. He wants to make us stable and fruitful. So, are you on board with that agenda? Stable, fruitful. We want that, but sometimes we don't want the pain and we shrink back, but we need to know this is a good, loving project. We can trust this one who is at work in us. So it gets even better. All of that is for the sake of the second request. It builds up to the second request. Strength for experiential comprehension, verses 18 to 19. So, Again, catch the flow that he may grant you to be strengthened internally so that Christ would dwell in your heart that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Where does all the true love in this world come from? If there is an ounce of of true love in this world, where does it come from? It comes from God. God is the source and the fountain of all true love because God is love. He's not just loving, though he is that. He is love, 1 John 4. And his love is eternal. So if God is only a single person, like in Judaism or Islam, then he's not love in his essential being. He had to create another person in order to love. So the reason that the Bible says God is love is bound up in his very nature, his Trinitarian nature. God is love because God is triune. He is love and has loved for all eternity. 
Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father. The Spirit, this beautiful, loving society. So God didn't create us because He was lonely or He was needy or He was bored. He created us because it is in the nature of a fountain to overflow. He wanted to share His love with us. He wanted to invite us into His holy, mind-blowing, heart-thrilling, soul-expanding love of God for God. Listen to John 17. Remember Jesus prayed, high priestly prayer, um, John 17, before He went to the cross. The last three verses. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What? Do you comprehend that? I mean, maybe like Elias comprehends his daddy's love. I mean, again, that's finite. Like, this is mind-blowing. Don't you want to comprehend that more? God wants us to enter into and know and experience intra-Trinitarian love? I mean, talk about perfect love. And think of the reaches to which this God was willing to go in order to make this possible, to make this happen. You can't figure this stuff out on your own. You can't comprehend it on your own. We need supernatural grace. We need the Spirit of God to understand the gospel, to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for His people. Romans 5.5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I mean, it's just beyond our comprehension. We need help. We need the Spirit's help to really comprehend and be blown away by how great this love is in Christ. So we need the Spirit's help. We also need the church's help to understand the love of God. Do you see that? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Again, you can't just go sit out in a cabin in the woods and figure this one out. <laughs> you actually will know the love of God more and more by searching it out with the people of God. And that can happen with, you know, saints that are alive today as well as those who have gone before. So it happened just a few minutes ago. If that C.S. Lewis quote helps you to understand what God is doing and his, his love at work, well, together with the saints, the dead saints. This can happen as you read your kid 
your child a good book about the character of God like the Jesus Storybook Bible because Sally Lloyd-Jones describes the love of God as never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So, yes, us as a church in your community group, but also the church, and we benefit from the saints who get a glimpse of what the love of God is like, and we get to have a better vision, greater comprehension, greater appreciation when we see God's love at work in someone else and through them and how they have pondered it and comprehended it and tried to explain it. So this is together with all the saints, this happens. This prayer is answered. Actually, a little of this together with the saints dynamic happened for me on Friday night. So Beth and I went out to dinner with Alex and Betsy, which was wonderful. And I asked the table the same question that I started out the message with. When have you most keenly felt or known God's love for you? And we kind of went around the table. See, I think sometimes if we just, it it was actually eye-opening for me. Because what happened was, there was a a repeated theme of God's care and sustaining grace and presence in and through suffering. So oftentimes, the kind of love we want is the warm, fuzzy stuff, which a big hug from your loving Heavenly Father is a good thing, a welcome thing, you know? But oftentimes we know and comprehend His love in and through the hardest times. Just like a good father or mother with their child. Sustaining, rescuing, upholding, holds you together love like a loving father. So if love is really willing, desiring the best for another, no matter the personal cost, we see this most clearly in in God, in the gospel. He did everything necessary to give us what we really needed. And he does everything necessary for that to change us from the inside out. Even though oftentimes it happens through really hard circumstances. So he doesn't rescue us from hard things. You know, the passage that Beth read in Romans 8. We could call the love of God into question when we suffer peril and sword, and famine, and nakedness. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Through all of that, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In fact, through those things, you become more than a conqueror. You're strengthened through those things. So hang on, and the Spirit's there to help you when you can't even pray, and you're just groaning. And the Son intercedes. So, Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
I mean, we've already seen, heard the love of God a couple times in Ephesians. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So you can know that in your head, but really grasping internally and having it change you, we need the Spirit's help, don't we? We need the Spirit to strengthen us and help us so that we can comprehend this. Or chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Again, we can know that is true, but there can be this big disconnect between our, the information in our heads, the facts in our heads, and, and the experiential knowledge deep down in our bones. So we need strength to comprehend, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So, for instance, <clears throat> I'm going to need to hustle here, but I think this is worth reading. So I know that a number of you have been reading this gentle and lowly book by Dane Ortland, and I'm glad to hear that. This is an example of how there can be this disconnect between what we know is true and yet our experience. So he writes this. Perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, which reveals our actual theology, whatever we say we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. How are they still falling short so much after all I've done for them? And the shoulders of our soul remain drooped in the presence of God. Once again, it is the result of projecting our own capacities to love onto God. We do not know his truest heart. Romans 5, 6 to 11 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Or Romans 8, same reasoning. If God didn't spare his son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things, everything that we need to make it all the way home? So Ortland then says, our very agony in sinning is the fruit of our adoption. A cold heart would not be bothered. So he says, when you sin, do a thorough job of repenting. Rehate sin all over again. Consecrate yourself afresh to the Holy Spirit and his pure ways. But reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder, a little stiffer. He's not flustered by your sinfulness. His deepest disappointment is with your tepid thoughts of his heart. Christ died 
placarding before you the love of God. If you are in Christ and only a soul in Christ would be troubled at offending him, your waywardness does not threaten your place in the love of God any more than history itself can be undone. The hardest part has been accomplished. God has already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness, and he did that while you were an orphan. More like an insolent runaway, you know, that was shaking your fist in his face. Nothing can now unchild you. Not even you. (laughs) You can't even unchild you. If you are united to Christ, you are as good as in heaven already. Raised Raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. So, the dimensions of the love of God in Christ are untraceable, unsearchable. They're infinite, will never reach the end. His love is inexhaustible and incomprehensible. We will be studying the love of God forever and never get bored with it. Do you believe that yet? Maybe the Lord needs to answer this prayer a few more times. Do you believe that yet? We'll be studying the love of God forever and never get bored with it. So there's another place where Paul uses this, you know, kind of super superlative, this translated surpassing. Okay, we have it here. This love that surpasses knowledge. Well, back in chapter 2, verse 7, you know, he saved us by his grace and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Do you see? It's going to take eternity. That's kind of a weird phrase, take eternity, because it just will never end. Because the dimensions are infinite. We're never going to get bored with it. Heaven is not this like download all at once and then, you know, maybe after like, I don't know, 5,000, 6,000 years, we're going to kind of be like, man, is there anything else to do around here? Oh, dimensions are infinite. John Stott waxes eloquent and certainly doesn't exaggerate when he writes, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. And remember in the context of Ephesians, Jews and Gentiles, but for us it's every tongue, tribe, and people and nation, broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. So the final request then is the climax of this prayer, or the capstone, I guess you could say, fullness, verse 19. So 18, that you may have strength to comprehend the dimensions and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants us to be filled with him with his grace, with all that he is for us in Christ. Listen, this is not, you know, rose-colored glasses. God knows that we can feel like we're gutted because of suffering and trials and whatever, like Naomi in the book of Ruth or like Job. No, none of those things can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In fact, James 1 He gives when he takes away. He can strengthen us internally in and through that suffering and produce perseverance and endurance and maturity. God intends to fill us 
and not just a little bit. He's not stingy. To the brim and overflowing. I was going to give a silly Grinch that stole Christmas illustration. You know, his heart was two sizes too small, and then he has like this conversion experience, doesn't he? Everybody know the Grinch? I mean, come on, okay? So he couldn't steal Christmas from Whoville, from the Who's. Heard their singing on Christmas morning. See, I am doing the illustration. I was toying there for a second, but now I'm doing it. Um, And it broke him. The beauty of it broke him. And then what happened? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then the true meaning of Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches, plus two. So this prayer and the answers to this prayer are what prepare us for the exhortations that follow in the chapters to come. We're going to turn the corner in chapter 4 and Paul is going to say, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Or Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Remember his love for you and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or husbands and wives and the love that's called for there. So listen, this prayer is so important in our lives in the flow of this book. The only way we can love is because he first loved us. But because he first loved us, as we study it and drink it in and it fills us up, we are enabled to love others. So where is the power, the motivation to love others? It's found in the love of God toward us. We need to know it. We need to study it. We need to pray that we'll comprehend it and be filled up with it. We need to know how limitless are its dimensions so that we are empowered to love others without selfish, stingy self-protectionism. So how about this for the plan and agenda of God in our lives? Blessed be our triune God of infinite love. This is how, by his limitless love, superabundant grace poured into our hearts, we become, we are a people to the praise of his glorious grace. So finally, glory to the superabundantly able doer, okay? This doxology at the end, I'll try to be quick here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. What power is that? Same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's resurrection power, the power of the Spirit. To him be glory in the church. Jew and Gentile, every tongue, tribe, people, nation, every possible divide in the church, united in Christ throughout all the generations, history, past, present, future history to come, forever and ever, eternity, Amen. So this doxology, you can see if you zoom out, is like a bookend. How does chapter 1 start? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now to him who's able to do it all, all the glory goes to him. Here is a God who can, is able to answer our prayers. Here is a God who wants to, is willing to answer our prayers. Glory be to the super abundantly able doer. He is able to answer way beyond all we ask or think. I don't know about you, but I want to doubt that. I tend to doubt that. And I think we're all probably prone to being a little cynical. 
But let's be defiant with that cynicism. Let's pray instead and get our eyes and our hearts on the love of God. We will never see to the bottom. And let's learn with the saints. We can't grasp this alone. So let me close with this quote by John Stott and the musicians can come up for our closing song. So John Stott said this, God's ability to answer prayer is forcefully stated by the apostle in a composite expression of seven stages. He is able to do or to work for he is neither idle nor inactive nor dead. Two, he is able to do what we ask for he hears and answers prayer. Three, he is able to do what we ask or think for he reads our thoughts, and sometimes we imagine things for which we dare not and therefore do not ask. Have you ever had the Lord answer a prayer you actually never even got around to praying? Four, he's able to do all that we ask or think, for he knows it all and can perform it all. Five, he's able to do more than, beyond all that we ask or think, for his expectations are higher than ours. Six, he's able to do much more or more abundantly than all that we ask or think, for he does not give his grace by calculated measure. Seven, he's able to do very much more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, for he is a God of superabundance. This adverb, more abundantly, is one of Paul's coined super superlatives, an English equivalent which has been proposed is immeasurably more but perhaps the feel of it is best conveyed by infinitely more. It states that there are no limits to what God can do. God's love is stronger than you think. He is stronger than you think, and I think. His love is stronger than we think, and he intends to make you and me stronger than we think. And he intends for you to experience his love in a way that's stronger than mere thought, stronger than we thought possible. So let's pray that he will. Oh God, please don't just help us understand sentences and words on a page. Please answer this prayer. In Jesus' name and for your namesake, amen.